and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This time, Brexit betrayal. From the Who's Roger Daltrey to Scottish fishermen, people who supported the campaign to leave the European Union, are finding that, surprise, surprise, Boris Johnson wasn't being entirely truthful with some of his promises. Who'd have guessed? We'll hear from a Scottish exporter who can't even send his goods from one part of the United Kingdom to another. It was apparent that our exports to the EU were going to be banned completely, and that includes sales to Northern Ireland. I can't send Scottish seed potatoes to Northern Ireland just right now. It's, it's, it sounds incredible, but that's the way it is. Plus food poverty, after the Byline Times helped expose the measly rations sent to hard-up families during lockdown and reveal the links between the company sending them and the Tory party, we'll hear from one mum who avoids her local food bank to save the kids from embarrassment. I would have to take them to collect food from a food bank where parents from the school are there with their children sometimes, doing their volunteering things for their Duke of Edinburgh, etc. So obviously that's really shaming for my children to have to come along and deal with that socially. So I won't go to that. I'll go to one further away so that my children don't have to face that. And the lowdown on Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who was arrested on his return to Moscow after recovering from a near-fatal poisoning. Just the latest example of how standing up to President Putin can be bad for your health. There's a certain backlog and history of the Russian opposition dying from unnatural courses. Nemtsov being shot, Politkovskaya being poisoned and shot, Vladimir Karamurza being poisoned twice, people falling off skyscrapers and slipping and breaking their neck. It's a consistent flow of news. All of that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because we're funded by people like you, our readers and listeners. We don't take ads from government or corporate interests. There's no media tycoon in the background calling the shots. So if you believe in what we're doing, please consider subscribing to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, just £36 a year. You'll get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, Boris's Brexit betrayal. When Prime Minister Johnson secured his deal with the EU on Christmas Eve, he declared it was a present for the country. But many people are already wondering if, like that naff jumper your aunt bought you, you can take it back and get something else. Whether it's truckers having their ham and cheese sandwiches confiscated on arrival in Holland, disgruntled Scottish fishermen threatening to dump seafood outside Number 10, or Who frontman Roger Daltrey complaining about the visas that will make life difficult for his fellow musicians, it's clear there are a lot of disappointed people about. Many of those who hope Brexit would lead to less of that infamous red tape are getting tied up in more of it. Except that now, it's not Brussels to blame, but Boris. Byline Times writer Mike Buckley has been gauging the mood of one Scottish exporter. So I've been speaking to a guy called Andrew Ski, who runs a business in Scotland called Potato House. And he sells these things called seed potatoes across the UK, but also across, or he has been, across the European Union and across to the the rest of the world as well. And I didn't know what seed potatoes were a few weeks ago, but they are the kind of potatoes that you sell to somebody if they want to start a potato crop to then be able to sell that potato crop as a business. Or indeed, householders do, do the same thing. 
And as I understand it, seed potato exports are impossible at the moment to the EU unless you go through these reams of red tape, which we were promised would disappear once we'd left the European Union. Well, it's worse than that, actually. So you can't sell sea potatoes uh, to the EU or into the single market at all at the moment because of uh, specific restrictions on this product, I guess because of concerns about possible diseases that could be present in the seed potatoes. But even if that is resolved between our government and the European Union, there'll still be all the paperwork and red tape in place. Andrew, explain to me what it means right now for him and his industry. Well, seed potatoes uh, kind of rose to prominence just in these few days before Christmas when the Brexit deal was announced and it was apparent that our exports to the EU were going to be banned completely. And that, that includes sales to Northern Ireland. I can't send Scottish seed potatoes to Northern Ireland just right now. It's, it's, it sounds incredible, but that's the way it is. I mean, that does sound incredible, Mike, the idea that a Scottish exporter cannot export seed potatoes to Northern Ireland within the same United Kingdom. That, I think, will be staggering to many people. What are the prospects of that situation being sorted out in the longer term? I spoke to Andrew and he's hopeful that sea potatoes, he will be able in the future to export them to the EU and, and also into, the, into Northern Ireland as well. But of course, all the checks and all the red tape and all the paperwork will, will still be in place. But effectively, I mean, this is, it's, it's one of the many, many things that have shown that the choice the government made, not in this agreement, but in the withdrawal agreement in late 2019, to put a, a border down the Irish Sea, it means that we now have a border within our own country. And that's a reality. The government, of course, are intent on denying it every time they're asked about it on the media. But it's a reality. I mean, this is why Andrew can't export. And it's why there are blank spaces on supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so the important point here is that to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which has brought peace in Northern Ireland, the UK government can't erect border posts or physical walls between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, so they continue to have pretty much frictionless trade. Instead, as a trade-off, if you like, we have effectively a wall, an invisible wall, but a trade wall between Britain and and Northern Ireland. That's right. And I think we are the only country in the world that has, has what's effectively an international border within, it, within its own territory and that, <laughs> and that has chosen to carve off part of its own territory and put it in a different customs, uh, under a different customs regime. And you had the ludicrous situation of hearing Brandon Lewis, who's the um, Northern Ireland secretary, talking up Northern Ireland and saying Northern Ireland's got a great deal because they've ended up in the single market and the customs union so they can, you know, export to export within the European Union and play within that market. And he was talking that up, but without, of course, looking at it from the other perspective, which is thereby saying they've denied that to the rest of the United Kingdom, which they have. And we also have a situation where musicians are petitioning, requesting visa-free access to go and work in the European Union, something that is not currently permissible. There will have to be visa and red tape for musicians as well. What about people in Andrew's situation going forward? 
Well, I think, I mean, you mentioned musicians. They will not just need a visa, a work visa, but they'll need a specific one for every European country they go to. So where before, of course, they could just go to Paris and Berlin and Copenhagen, the same as they can go to York and Leeds. Now, if they want to tour in that way, they will need to get a visa for, for every single European state that they go to. So it's not as simple as getting a single work visa for the whole of the EU or single market at all, unfortunately. For people like Andrew, I mean, he's facing a future where a huge proportion of his business is based in the EU. So if, if that is harmed in any way, then it's going to massively affect the profitability of his company. 45% of our sales are currently going to the EU. We've focused a lot on developing that market. Since the uh, the financial crisis, actually, our, our sales dropped quite a bit back in 2008 to 10 to 12. And, and we found that, that, the, that there was a market in Germany, in particular Sweden, France and Ireland. These are my main countries. But we send seed to all countries in Europe and we built that up gradually over a long period till it, till it was, as I say, 45% of the whole business. And it really hasn't happened overnight. It's been a lot of hard work. I've spent a lot of time visiting trade shows, visiting customers. Uh, you've obviously got language issues. So it's you kind of have to go and visit these people to try and get an understanding of, of what they're doing, what they want, what, what products we can supply that are going to best suit them. So it's it's been a, a long, hard slog. And uh, yeah, it'd be a disaster really if we have to write write that investment off. Okay, so that's one business. Others, though, are unhappy that Brexit promises haven't been fulfilled. There are across the country. I mean, you will have seen lots of businesses across the country. I mean, supermarkets have basically said that the new trading arrangements are unworkable. And somewhat ironically, the one business, as you mentioned, that the government have made a big play in the negotiations of standing up for fishermen, they have also lost out Partly, some of them simply are not able to fish. I mean, there's a massive trawler in based in Hull, apparently, that normally would fish about an eighth of the entire fish quota of the whole UK that has been unable to fish since Brexit happened because the government hasn't got to put a deal in place with Norway. So they just sat there waiting to be legally allowed to go and fish again. And for other fishermen across the country, they're simply not able to do their job. Or if they are, they're not able to export because there are huge delays now at the border that they simply can't get their produce to market in Europe uh, quickly enough before it goes off. Yeah, the Scottish Fishing Federation, who I mentioned earlier as well, saying that the Brexit deal has left them enjoying the worst of both worlds. They've turned against Boris Johnson. They have, absolutely. And this is all turning out very, very badly. I mean, very sadly, it's turning out very badly for the country. But of course, it's also turning out badly for the government because they've spent so long telling us that the world is going to be wonderful once Brexit goes through. And of course, it isn't turning out in that way, shape or form at all. And indeed, the worst, the worst warnings of uh, people on the other side are being realised. Andrew Ski was telling me that adjusting to the post-Brexit landscape won't be easy. And it's easy to forget how long it took to get trade barriers to the, basically the zero point that they were at before Brexit happened. All the regulations that have harmonised the UK market, the UK and the EU market over the last 20 or 30 years have taken 20 or 30 years to get to where they are. It's not something that's just that can just be turned on or off. It has taken a long time and there's... I know that I know some of the people from the Scottish government and from the UK government who have gone to meetings in Brussels and gone through details with a fine tooth comb and finally arrived at a, a kind of consensus for something that 
allows the market to be harmonized. These things don't just happen overnight and we've just thrown it all away. We've thrown away 30 years of, of work. Yeah, that's a really interesting point there by Andrew Ski. Of course, Mike, we do have to bear in mind that many of the people who voted for Brexit voted for what they regarded as the reclaiming of British sovereignty because they wanted to control immigration and so on. So the kind of criticisms that you're making about trade, although I would say they perhaps won't regard them as insignificant, that may not have been why they voted for Brexit in the first place. But actually, I mean, the really sad thing, and and this will come out over time, is that we've ended up with less sovereignty than we had before, because we are now in the position with this deal that Boris Johnson proudly negotiated of having the freedom to deregulate and the freedom to move on from European standards and regulations and so on. But we're tied, we're caught on a string, because if we do so, then there will be repercussions. The European Union will impose tariffs and it will impose quotas on our exports. That will cost our economy. So every time we shift from European standards, which we used to set, but do not anymore, you know, there will be a cost for our country and our economy. So they lead the show now and we have to follow where they go. Uh, and in some ways, that is that is no bad thing for people like me who believe in high standards and high regulations. But it does, it does mean that we, we essentially have less sovereignty than a member state. And that isn't where people who proudly said that they wanted to take sovereignty back uh, wanted to end up. And in terms of immigration, what's happened is that immigration from the European Union has gone down sharply since the Brexit vote. And we just saw that even in the last year, apparently uh, huge numbers of European citizens have left the UK, partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because of Brexit, including 700,000 from Europe alone. But actually, because our economy needs immigration, we need immigration in the NHS, in social care, in agriculture, in hospitality. There just aren't enough young people to fill all the jobs that need to be filled. So what's happened instead is that the government has made it easier for non-EU immigration. So non-EU immigration has gone up. So for people who wanted immigration to stop, it hasn't. It's just coming from somewhere else. Mike Buckley with a version of Brexit you won't see widely reported in the papers. But then the Byline Times is different. We can tell it like it is because we're not dancing to anyone's tune. There's no media magnet, no corporate interest pulling our strings. Instead, we're funded by the generosity of people like you, our subscribers. For just £36 a year, you can get our fab monthly paper, the Byline Times, and your subscription also pays for our website, Byline TV, and this podcast. And if you've done that already, well, thank you very much indeed. You can get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, when a Twitter user called Roadside Mum posted pictures of the measly ration she was sent to feed her kids during lockdown as a substitute for free school meals, the story went viral and she gave an exclusive interview to Sean Norris in Byline Times. In a follow-up story, which questioned the privatisation of school meals provision, Sean revealed that the company which provided the care pack in the picture, Chartwells, is a subsidiary of a company called Compass, whose former owner, Paul Walsh, had close links to the Conservatives and even made a £10,000 donation to the party. For the Byline Times podcast, I've been speaking to a single mum, let's call her Lily, who has three children who qualify for free school meals. In her area, parents are being sent food vouchers rather than care parcels during lockdown. The cost of childcare means it would be more expensive for her to go to work than stay at home and look after her kids, so she relies on benefits and she's been telling me what it's been like trying to put food on the table in the midst of the pandemic. 
I've had the children at home for a lot longer. So they've been off school isolating every time someone's come into contact with something. That means I have to find more meals. And I've also, I had COVID myself and I was really sick and I had to buy things like pot noodles, which are more expensive than what I would normally be buying so that they could feed themselves when I wasn't well enough to actually cook for them. It's also been really difficult with the vouchers. So not only am I alone 24-7 with children and they've got special needs, so that's hard enough just keeping on top of the normal day-to-day to access the vouchers, having to go through so many different hoops and you know them not working so I've had a whole shop cancelled because one of the vouchers wasn't valid. So it's a very bureaucratic process then actually accessing the food if you have these vouchers. It's wasted literally hours if not days of my time when that is actually you know a really precious commodity as well and it is really frustrating to feel that Basically, poor parents are judged to be parents that don't love or care for their children, whereas actually poverty, that's not, doesn't automatically make you a bad parent. It just makes you a parent struggling um, financially. When you say that the vouchers make you feel as though you're a parent who isn't trusted or it's as though you don't care for your children, what do you mean by that? Well, the fact that I have to go through this really long bureaucratic process and where I feel I'm shamed at every stage. So customer services won't check the vouchers for you to tell you whether or not they work. So I have to manually input 16 digit numbers plus a code for every 15 pounds. So for every different child on a website to check that the vouchers even work. But I've only learned this from experience. And then I have to put those same vouchers in individually at the checkout. And I obviously try to not pay lots of delivery costs. So I have to try and put as much food as I can in one shopping basket but equally you can only use a maximum number of vouchers per shop as well but equally nobody tells you this so it's only when they don't work and you spend hours on the phone to customer services trying to work it out and speaking to different people that don't even know how their own schemes work and every time they treat you like there's something wrong with you for having to use this in the first place parents put their children first that is kind of almost a definition of being a parent I only eat my kids leftovers after I've made sure that they've had food to eat but I still can't be trusted if I had more money to spend that to benefit them I know that you've also used a food bank in the past as well how does that make you feel I would love not to have to and it's also really difficult because Basically, I have got young children, so they are with me all of the time. I would have to take them to collect food from a food bank where parents from the school are there with their children sometimes, doing their volunteering things for their Duke of Edinburgh, etc. So obviously that's really shaming for my children to have to come along and deal with that socially. So I won't go to that. I'll go to one further away so that my children don't have to face that. So one thing that was good about lockdown was because being COVID safe, they wouldn't let people in the building, they actually delivered. So that was really helpful. 
whenever there are discussions around food vouchers and food banks, questions are raised about so-called feckless parents. You and I have spoken off-air. I know that you have a husband who hasn't paid child maintenance, and even though you've attempted to get the, the system to bring the father of your children to book, that hasn't worked. And you are somebody who has worked in the past and has paid into the system, but at the moment, because you have three children who you're looking after on your own, you would lose money if you went to work. So I worked full time when I had just the one child and I could afford to because I could afford the childcare. There wasn't much left over. I might have been better off on benefits, but I wanted to work because I could and for maybe things to get better in the long run. But the thing is, you can have a partner that basically is financially abusive and won't contribute to the children. And now, obviously, I see it further in that not only is he not with us, but he has means but he chooses not to share them with the children and really if anyone's feckless it is fathers that don't support their children and also the system that has been allowing it powerful words from lily food poverty has been thrust into the limelight in recent times because of the eloquence of england and manchester united footballer marcus rashford whose own family relied on breakfast clubs free school meals and sometimes food banks to get by I've been getting a broader view of food poverty with Alison Walsh, Commercial Director of Fair Share, which has been working with Marcus, and Amy Allen from Smethwick Church Action Network, which runs the Smethwick Food Bank in the West Midlands. Last year, we gave out 190 food parcels in a month, and since March, we've been giving out 450 a month. We've just shut our doors from a two-hour session today. We had 56 households turn up, and I would say the vast majority of those are families, probably 35 to 40 of those are families. And a lot of those families are incredibly anxious and incredibly worried about feeding their children while they're at home, as well as the other things as well that come with having people in the house, a lot more electricity bills, heating bills, trying to get kids on, you know, good Wi-Fi connections. So the anxiety is definitely there and definitely real. And what do people tell you then is driving this? It really varies. We've got a lot of people who I would say this time last year weren't concerned about their finances, have never used a food bank before. And now they're turning up and they're just saying, I've lost my job or the money that I'm earning isn't covering, expenses have gone up or they're first time benefits users and they're waiting for that system to kick in. And sometimes that can take quite a long time. So there's lots of things going on, really. But for families in particular, it is a very scary time. And we always see an increase the last Friday before we break up in the summer and Christmas, the last Friday where we were in just before Christmas, we always see a massive increase on those days of people needing to use food banks. They're worried about school holidays. Whereas since March, we've basically been at that level all the time. And Alison, one of the oddest things for me about this whole food poverty debate at the moment is that much of it has been driven by a footballer. Marcus Rashford, who's been working in collaboration with your organisation, Fair Share. Good on him, but isn't that a bit strange? 
I, I think you're right. And I think the thing that's come out from this is that Marcus Rashford, whether he's a footballer by day or a train engineer or whatever, he's talking with lived experience. So there's actually some some real genuine credibility about the torchbearer of the message. And the issue of food poverty without him shining a light on it has really up until this past year and the pandemic starting been a really invisible one. And and the point about food banks being busier, you know, just before the beginning of the school holidays and at Christmas is something that Fair Share has seen over the past few years when it came to summer holidays. And I think there just hasn't been an awareness of children who've needed to access the, the meal provision term time suddenly falling through the net over the summer. There wasn't a, a consciousness about that. So that that's a massive difference that Marcus has brought because he actually got in touch with Fair Share through something we were doing last summer and it really chimed with him because he benefited from the school breakfast clubs, the holiday clubs, and really knew how they'd helped his his mum and their family over the years. So not only have you got someone who understands the value of it, but has used their platform to raise awareness of it. And I do think that's been the the point of difference is it's not somebody who's just famous. It's somebody who goes, but I know about this and I want to tell you about it. And everyone has turned around in this year and the words food poverty are understood, unfortunately. And I would say where Fair Shares talked to funders and businesses in the past about why they could support our work, sometimes when the words food poverty are used, people people don't really get it or they didn't do. And that's really shifted things. What you do is take surplus food from supermarkets and redistribute it to the neediest members of society. I suppose that encapsulates, doesn't it, the, the notion that we live in a society of, of haves and have-nots, the sense that there can be this surplus food out there which otherwise might go to waste, and there are people out there who are in desperate need of food. It's the same problem of visibility and and actually food surplus and and extras and leftovers and cancelled orders, that exists all the way back through the supply chain. So yes, it's there at supermarket level at end of day, but it's actually there in the distribution centres where maybe more food for an order is delivered just in case some of it fell over and and wasn't quite usable. It's there in the packing house when they've over-ordered on the number of cartons to put the grapes in. It's there at the growers because weather is unpredictable and you don't really know how much to plant but you and you don't know how sunny it's going to be, but you know you've got to get your order into the supermarket and you'll get penalised if you don't have the right orders. So at every stage along the way, the general cost of mass production of food will always create excess or surplus. And Fair Share's mission is to make sure that it's not wasted because of all the nutrients and the water and everything that goes into making it, that it actually gets to people and it goes on plates because otherwise that's that's a waste of every part of it. And, and we started off with that idea in mind. Amy, you see people who are in very difficult circumstances. You send them home with a food parcel. Obviously, that's very positive but once they've gone out of the door that food parcel doesn't do anything to address the big underlying issues does it of food poverty and poverty generally no it doesn't and obviously the way we're having to operate during covid where we're outside we're not even able to have people in the building to make them a cup of tea it is a big concern i know we're obviously part of the trussell trust network and i know it's something that they're looking at very closely In particular, a lot of the support that's out there needs digital access. And we've got a lot of people at the moment who who can't get online. They used to use the library. That's now shut. 
how we do digital inclusion is really important. I also think nobody should ever feel shame or that they're lowering themselves or anything like that to come to a food bank. As the last year has proven, none of us really, it can happen to any of us, and there's no shame in that. But at the same time, it's hard for people when they can't pick their kids' favourite cereal. They can't be support their children independently the way they want to. There's a dignity and a confidence around that, that as much as you know, we have got the nicest volunteers in the world, and they they can't compensate for that as much as we can try. Well, that that's a really interesting point, and I certainly hear what Amy's saying in terms of that ability to provide support. So, in fact, the difference between an organisation like the Trussell Trust and Fair Share is that food from us goes out to the frontline services, not individuals directly. And we feel that by working with a network of eleven thousand charities whether you know the purpose of that is to help people with mental health issues or um, isolation in the community or domestic abuse refuges or anything like that is we provide the food and in a way the food's the hook to get people in because people are experiencing poverty of, of all types but actually by working with those organizations we feel they're better placed being on the ground with that expertise to provide the wraparound services because give somebody some food and that's fine for four or five hours, but it doesn't change the problems that they're experiencing. So whether it's about systemic change or something you know, more dynamic around that person at that point of time, we feel that it's a supported journey that people need to be on. And as people who can go out and identify where food is is surplus and excess, that's not our expertise, but we work with those who who have it. And so we feel that food makes the connection, you know, as, as it does with all of us. And I think if we weren't all doing this digitally and remotely, we'd be sitting down and having a cup of tea afterwards and just talking and bonding and, and building those relationships. That's what those organisations do. And once you're there and you start to relax, you're open to what services they can offer, what support they can give you. And so for me, it's always about food plus support to help really make a difference. Alison Walsh from Fair Share with Amy Allen, the coordinator of Smedic Food Bank. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. Russia's influence on the UK, the US and the West generally has been extensively covered in Byline Times. Check out Peter Duke's writings on the Byline Times website about the millions of pounds in donations made to the Conservative Party by Russian donors and President Putin's attempts to influence both the Brexit debate and the election of Donald Trump. We've also explored Putin's attempts to infiltrate British life in a previous Byline Times podcast, well worth checking out. The Russian president doesn't much like people who stand up to him. Numerous critics and political rivals have come to a sticky end and the main opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, almost died in August after being poisoned in a nerve agent attack. He was taken to Germany where he recovered, but he has now, perhaps surprisingly, returned to Russia where he was promptly arrested for allegedly breaching the terms of his parole for an embezzlement sentence. Navalny believes the arrest is politically motivated. But why on earth did he go back in the first place when his life is clearly at risk? A question I put to Russia disinformation expert Zarina Zabriskie. 
There are several reasons for his return, and uh, one is more pertaining to psychology and to what they notoriously refer as a Russian psyche or Russian soul, and it certainly has the element of heroism and martyrdom and the whole concept of dying for your country. And Navalny is certainly a patriot in a good sense of word, because lately this word has been hijacked and abused, and it can have a negative connotation. However, that's not the major factor here, because pretty much anyone can recognize the uh, bravery of a person who just narrowly escaped death, returning back to his murderer. However, I believe there is a certain and very good strategic consideration here. It's not just me. A few people called it an epic battle. And what Navalny does with his move, because it became almost like a chess game, an epic chess game of evil and good, he exposes Putin as a complete villain. Because, of course, targeting relatively helpless civilian with all the arsenal uh, that a dictator of a totalitarian country has in store is unfair game, first of all. Be trying to murder a person is universally accepted as an act of evil. And by suppressing the opposition, Putin confirms again and again that even a semblance of democracy does not exist in Putin's Russia. Although we should point out that Putin has denied any involvement in the poisoning that almost killed Navalny. He says he had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Of course, a good point. However, we also know that in the international community's opinion, there's a certain backlog and history of the Russian opposition dying from unnatural courses. Nemtsov being shot, Politkovskaya being poisoned and shot, Vladimir Karamurza being poisoned twice, people falling off skyscrapers and slipping and breaking their neck. It's a consistent flow of news that everybody recognizes. And even though Putin and, of course, deny his involvement. We also know that Litvinenko was poisoned with polonium and the high court in London confirmed that Putin was involved and it wasn't Putin's order that that has happened. So there's a certain history which allows us, us as the international community, to think that Putin is involved. But even if we decide to believe Putin and decide that, yes, he's not involved in poisoning, he's not involved in annexation of Crimea, he's not involved in the shooting down of Boeing, and so forth. We still can see that on Navalny's arrival, the Russian authorities that report to Putin divert his plane and later arrest him and put him in jail and intend to pack him away on a long term. So that is obvious, and he cannot deny that. So he's obviously involved in suppressing Navalny's voice one way or another, right? 
There have been calls from a number of international leaders for the release of Navalny. The US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said Putin was trying to silence his critics. France, Italy, Germany have also called for his release. And Dominic Raab, the UK Foreign Secretary, declared that Navalny's arrest was, and I quote, appalling. Do you think those criticisms will make any difference? Well, I can repeat a tweet by Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat, who wrote yesterday in a rather angry voice. Bellingcat, for people who don't know, is a respected investigative website. Probably the best, I should add. And so he said that your outrageous mood and stern tweets mean exactly jack shit to Putin. He is the person who poisoned Navalny and poisoned other people and kills. He he doesn't care about their opinions. And that is correct. However, what I wanted to add and was too busy to reply to the tweet is that, however, it's important that we do retweet and that we do bring this knowledge out in the light, because that's the part of this strategic consideration I have mentioned before. This needs to be brought to spotlight. The world must know that Putin is a dictator who cruelly suppresses any opposition, any free voices, and that basically it's a murderous regime, period. And that is important because that international community opinion can influence the leaders to impose the economic sanctions. And that's what really hurts the Kremlin. So if all of us put our voices together and press our presidents and prime ministers and cabinets into imposing Magnitsky Act and and existing economic sanctions and basically cut off the money that is pumping into Russia, be it from sales of oil and gas and natural resources or having their assets on the territory of foreign countries, all the real estate in London or in New York or in Miami, all of this should be under sanctions. These people should be cut off the free line. They they shouldn't have access to their fraudulently acquired riches in the West. And that's what will eventually hurt them. And here I want to add that everybody interested in the subject or just looking for some entertainment should look for Navalny's new film. It's called Putin Palace. It's on YouTube. It's in Russian with English subtitles. And it starts with a brief summary of Putin's background as a KGB agent and a bandit. And then it gives the overview and the virtual tour of Putin's palace that he's been building in Crimea, close to Black Sea, for a few years. And that's a sort of a Russian Versailles. It's probably bigger than Versailles or the Winter Palace. I'm very familiar with the background analysis that Navalny gives in the first 30 minutes because I translated one of the best investigative journalist blogs, Artem Kruglov. You can find it online. It's called Putinism in English, Putinism. And the byline time actually did a short summary of that too. And it gives a detailed account of Putin's bandit past. And it's, again, strategic to release this video now 
as Navalny is cut off the world in jail and can't communicate even with his lawyer, we all should watch that. And finally, there should be no doubt in the world on the nature of Putin's power and the nature of Putin's character. The video investigation accuses Vladimir Putin of using fraudulently obtained funds to build a $1 billion estate. That's the essence of that YouTube video. How significant a political threat in Russia does Navalny pose to Putin? He is a threat, not as an individual, but he's a threat as an opposition leader and a person who inspires people who have negative feelings about this regime. And at this point, it's quite a lot. We don't have the percentage because the results of the polls are always, always falsified in Russia. But we know that there are critical masses of people who are unhappy to have the same person ruling them for 30 years and uh, changing the constitution and stealing massive funds when a large part of the Russian population lives under the poverty line. So what can happen now, and that is not really that smart on Putin's part, and maybe it's uh, the result of sitting in the bunker for almost a year and starting to lose his marbles. I think before he would think twice before angering the Russian people so, because everybody can see the injustice and even people who dislike Navalny. And I have to say that there is a fair amount of people who who don't like Navalny. Navalny is no angel. He's a product of the system. He's a product of his environment. He could be quite racist. He has a history of expressing some sympathy to some very right forces and so forth. But right now, it becomes irrelevant. What's relevant now is that he becomes a national symbol of unrest and a symbol that can lead the masses for the new revolution. And even Pushkin, the favorite poet of the Russian people, said once that be very afraid of the anger and the fury of the Russian people. It has no excuses and has no pity, no mercy. And if the Russian people really rise and decide to overturn Putin's regime, his worst fear will come to life because he's paranoid about meeting Mussolini's fate, basically. And that can happen if people do answer Navalny's call for mass street protests on January 23rd. And how significant is the timing of Navalny's arrival back in Russia and his arrest, the fact that it coincides with the inauguration of Joe Biden? I can only hope that inauguration and our potential unrest in the United States will not interfere with this international outrage and that people will be able to connect these two events. I will give you one fact. It is known that on the first day in the office, Biden is supposed to sign the executive order stopping the Excel pipeline. And on the first day in the office of his presidential term, Trump signed the executive order to give green light to this pipeline. And it is symbolic because this pipeline uses the Yevraz steel 
And Yevraz belongs to uh, Roman Abramovich, who is uh, Putin's closed allies. Basically translated from investigative journalistic lingo, it means that Trump showed his loyalty to Putin and Biden shows that there will be no loyalty, that he will confront Putin and that perhaps the economic sanctions will be imposed and that the United States will get back on track as being the leader of democratic forces in the world and will help the Russian people with Navalny as a leader to get their country back from Putin's regime. Serena Zabriskie bringing to an end this episode of the Byline Times podcast. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and if you've got any comments to make about the podcast, or if you want to get in touch with me with a story, please email goldbergradio at gmail.com. And just to remind you that the Byline Times podcast, like the Byline Times in general, is funded by people like you. You subscribe to our monthly paper, the Byline Times, a snip at £36 a year. More information at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next week.